This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. The leaders of the opposition are the sad stories in this. There's an irony about Shirley Williams. She was incredibly popular but kept on losing her seat. We are delighted to welcome back to the Books Podcast, Steve Richards, who, for my money, is the most trenchant observer of British politics in the country. Steve, thank you for joining us again. Thank you very much, Tim. Now, your last book was a consideration of the last ten prime ministers, jolly good. This one's kind of a, a companion volume, isn't it? It's a yeah. study of, yes, ten people, or, well, eleven, 11. depending on how you count them, who might have become PM, but who didn't. So, yeah. um... We really need to start off with the criteria. There are many, many politicians who thought they should have been, yes. and there are lots of politicians who somebody might have thought. But how did you select your 10 or 11? Yeah, it's a key question to make sense of this book, really, because at least once a year, a radio show does who is the prime minister we never had, and listeners phone in with their favourites. Mm -hmm. Well, if I did that, that book would be longer than War and Peace. Yeah. So there had to be strict criteria. And the criteria were who had a chance to be prime minister, who had a feasible route towards being prime minister, who was perceived as a likely prime minister. And when you pose those two questions, you then get involved in a deep political mystery. Why didn't it happen? That's always So the all the, um, it's not a counter historical account of what if Neil Kinnock had won or what if Michael Heseltine had become prime minister. It's why did these figures who were in a way excited by and tormented by the speculation that they were about to be prime minister why didn't it happen? So that so it's it, it's more of an investigation into that mystery rather than anything else. But that's the criteria. But there, really, there are sort of two categories as well, aren't there? Because there are there are there are towering figures who you look back at them and think they really should have made it. And we're thinking of uh, and we're going to have to be a bit specific for some, for some of our listeners because anybody younger than me will never have heard of Rab Butler and I'll yeah. bet they've never heard of Dennis Healy. But these are figures who you, you look at them and, and can't imagine why they didn't become. And that, yet there's also a, 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 a bunch of people who really should never have been in the running. Perhaps Ed Miliband, uh, certainly Jeremy Corbyn. Um, actually, I'd add Johnson, May, and uh, and um, Truss, except that they all did. They all made it. Yeah, they all made but it. I mean, they would be in my category of ones who should never have been considered. It is a dangerous but game. It, it is two categories, though, isn't it? It is two categories. I can't, but it is. That's why the criteria has to be very strict. So, for example, when Liz Truss became prime minister and Rishi Sunak lost that leadership contest, uh, my publisher phoned me up and said. Will you add another chapter on prime ministers we never had with Rishi Sunak? <laughs> and <laughs> if I'd written didn't. that, uh, it would have been a huge waste of time. Um, so the, it has to be strict. Yeah, there are some who would have been, wherever your politics are, uh, bigger political figures than those who did become prime minister and failed. Um, but it's equally valid to put in uh, Jeremy Corbyn because after the 2017 general election, uh, when he wiped out the Conservatives' majority. Many people, including those who despised him, 
thought he could well be prime minister. So even with him, it's a fascinating question. What happened between what I regard as a triumph for him in 2017 to what is clearly a humiliation for him in 2019? And but you're right, there are you know these these titans of politics, whatever your politics are. We will come on to them. You've got a marvelous quote about. Jeremy Corbyn. You say he's, a, he's basically a tennis player in a local park transported to centre centre court at Wimbledon. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, which is why he's one of the ones who really shouldn't have uh, ever been in the running. But of course he was. Yeah. It, it, it remains in a very competitive field the most extraordinary story of British politics post-1945, the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, because he was a backbench MP from 1983, the year when Tony Blair and Gordon Brown became MPs. And all through that period of the Labour government, he was on the back benches, often rebelling against that Labour government. And yet, and by the way, during that period, I knew very well people who ached to be leader of the Labour Party. And the figure who became leader of the Labour Party was Jeremy Corbyn. And it, it, it and is because an he'd never heard, he's story. never held any office at all. And no, you, you've got yes, you've got your Tony Blairs and your David Camerons who'd never held a ministerial office, but they wanted it. And and, and they had been a, on the front bench, and they had understood some of the demands of leadership. Not many in both <laughs> cases, and in David Cameron's case, hardly any. Um, but. You, you suggest he's but, the shallowest figure of... Uh, in the other book, I, in the other I, book I, the shallowest. I think David Cameron is the most uh, shallow prime minister uh, since 1945. And by the way, I still think that, even though we've, since I wrote it, had the full Boris Johnson mm. span and Liz Truss. Um, uh, it was a shallowness, a sort of product of a sort of Etonian view of the world that everything was a bit of a game. And he was a sort of chap who ought to be. Yeah, I th he famously said, I want to be Prime Minister because I think I'd be rather good at it. But that was the previous book. I mean, this one does explore these figures, many of whom are bigger than Cameron. Why did Cameron get it? Why did Truss get it, albeit for about 10 minutes? And why did, I don't know, you mentioned Rab Butler. I, I obviously didn't know him, but I've read about him. And he had held every office and was a Some of great these people, reformer. Rand Butler and, 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 and Kenneth Clark and many of the others were um, hugely more qualified yeah. to be uh, prime minister than the, the, the people who actually did get the job. That's one of uh, the sad lessons. Yeah, Roy Jenkins. Yeah, I mean, Healy. Roy Jenkins. Healy, yeah. These were fascinating and deep figures. Um, Roy Jenkins was a great social reformer, of course. I mean, his social reforms of the late... 60s. I hadn't realized I'm writing another book at the moment called Turning Points, and I'm going to use his social reforms as a turning point. And Britain usually is so far behind other countries, you know, in sort of social justice and these things. In the late 60s, it led the world on progressive reforms with the Abortion Act, the Act legalizing homosexuality. It was extraordinary. And Roy Jenkins was really the key figure. He, he drove it. Harold Wilson was a very small C conservative prime minister, but to Wilson's credit, he let him do it. So why didn't Jenkins become prime minister? And the answer partly is, I'm afraid, and it's a really sad lesson, that their experience became a disqualification because they had done so much 
Uh, but in doing so much, you alienate sections of your party who elect these people. And so, you know, Rab Butler had been way to the left of most conservatives. And so when the key moments came, they, they didn't elect their leaders then. Their leaders emerged, but there was always uh, enough people saying, we can't go near Butler. He's done this and he's done that. And um, With uh, Roy Jenkins, it was over Europe more than anything else that made him unelectable for Labour. Uh, he was a passionate pro-European when Labour were anti-Europe. It's all turned on its head now, but um, that's how it was then. Healy was never forgiven for being uh, a public spending cutter during his period as Chancellor in those But this is another 70s. theme of your book, that it, you can be the, the biggest figure in the party, but unless you're it's constant, if you, unless you're moving in the same direction as your party, and that was Dennis Healy's big problem, yeah. was that the party was lurching to the, re, to the left and uh, electing uh, you know, Michael Foote, as as its leader and foot foot doesn't figure in your book foot's not one of, one of your well yeah men. i thought about putting michael foot in but of course there was no point that michael foot was perceived as a likely prime minister even though he was leader of the opposition uh he was so far behind in the opinion polls from the beginning um i mean i'd love to write about michael foot he's a fascinating figure um but i'm afraid he didn't meet those strict qualifications for what is a very dubious honor of being a <laughs> prime minister we never had um whereas corbyn does of course you know i mean it's uh, tony ben's not in the book and tony uh, corbyn idolized tony ben uh but the irony is that corbyn got much closer to being prime minister tony ben never really had a route to being prime minister so uh yeah but you're absolutely right the party we don't live in a presidential system. So you have to be at one with your party when a vacancy arises. And that is the problem for some of these big figures, that they are principled enough to believe in things that prevent them from becoming prime minister. So you mentioned Ken Clark. Europe stopped him. Absolutely. And, and, and he, he kept it. It was his hobby, wasn't it? People, Standing for, for leader yeah, of the Conservative He used to go party. around saying, late in life, I discovered a new hobby. Uh, standing and losing in Conservative leadership contests. He stood in at least three, began each one as the voters' favourite, and was slaughtered every time. And those who worked in his leadership campaign used to say, Ken, just pretend you're a bit sceptical about Europe. And he couldn't do it. Because, of course, Ken Clark was not only a, a, an enormous personality, but a, a successful minister. He was a, a successful chancellor. Which yeah, is, yeah. Although, on, 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 on most levels he was. Although, if you don't spend anything on public spending, it's quite easy to balance the books. Disaster I mean, public, for the country. Public services were on their knees by 1997, but he got the economy growing. Uh, and when Labour came in in 97 very different to what we you know the context in which we're now talking the economy was growing about 2.5 percent a year i mean they would die for that level of growth <laughs> yes, now you know so yeah he was on that basis a successful chancellor many thought he would succeed john major people thought portillo was going to succeed john i mean he's only known now mike portillo as this person in very odd suits traveling on trains exactly it's back to your um, criteria it's interesting that michael portillo who was never leader um, yeah. get gets into your book but william hague 
who was leader, was never going to be prime minister. No, exactly. Yeah, and Portillo. It's forgotten about. With Portillo was the pinup of the right in the mid nineteen nineties, and he held this fortieth birthday party when he was defence secretary, and it was the most glittering occasion. And Margaret Thatcher spoke, and she just said, "Michael, we have high hopes of you." And Major, who wasn't invited, who was prime minister. <laughs> Right. Um, uh, was in despair because it was it was like a sort of insurrectionary coronation, and of course, and and yet he didn't get it. He Why? lost his seat. Well, that was one reason he didn't get it. I mean, you've got to win seat. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you've got to be in parliament. That's when William Hague uh, did win uh, 97, 97, yeah, ninety-seven. Were you up for Portillo in the ninety-seven yes. election? But it was more than that. He was never sure who he was as a public figure. And so he, as defense secretary, he portrayed himself as this sort of kind of soldierly right-wing figure who used to go around giving speeches about the SAS. and um, But that wasn't really him, you know. And he had this sort of issue about his gay past, which he addressed uh, after he lost his seat, but not wholly truthfully according to some. And it was, it was very interesting. He only stood in one leadership contest for all the speculation about him becoming prime minister. And that was in 2001 when he began as favorite, uh, much the best known of the candidates, though Ken Clark stood. And he lost uh, very early on in that leadership contest. And that evening, uh, he said, I'm going off to the opera tonight and leaving politics. And it was almost a sense of relief. And this from this intensely ambitious figure, who from the age of about two wanted to be prime minister, to relief to get out of it and do series about train journeys in Australia. But doesn't that tie in back with your theme of um, of having too much, too many achievements, political achievements. If 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 a figure is is too familiar to the public, uh, one of Dennis Healy's problems was that he he'd been uh, as 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 forefront as uh, as a Labour politician as as the Prime Minister, and and do the public want something that's a bit new? That's well, I think the public so would have wanted Healy. It, it's very interesting about Healy. He took some very tough decisions as chancellor you know uh in that turbulent period of the late 70s which incidentally has many echoes with the current situation but healy with the public remained quite popular uh i think i put in the chapter on healy he used to be you know that you know those morecambe and wise christmas tv specials well healy used to appear dressed up as father christmas you know and they, the audience used to cheer when George Osborne opened something at the Paralympics, they booed. You know, yes. so, so he was quite popular with the wider. He blazed electorate. a trail for Boris Johnson to uh, to be yeah, sort of yeah. But uh, you, but the I think with Portillo and Heseltine, they were really tormented by a perception of intense ambition, and incidentally, later on with Labour in a curious way, although he's a very different character, so was David Miliband. You know, he suddenly became this great hope for a part of the Labour Party. And it went to David Miliband's head. He's a rather modest person, actually. He's not conceited. 
but it really went to his head, speculation that he would be prime minister. And the moment this speculation starts, uh, people change. Um, you say in the book that prime ministers sort of become political rock stars because because of their uh, their uh, exposure. But some politicians become stars while they they're bidding yeah, for it, and it, exactly. you, you don't think it's it's actually it's good too for early. Them. It's it's fatal. So Portillo for the right became a rock star, and it uh, and it was clear it was going to finish him off. Hesseltine, the excitement when Hesseltine gave interviews or spoke at party conferences. Uh, was uh, too much, you know. And so whenever Hesseltine gave an interview, he was asked, and are you thinking of standing for the leadership? And the, then you have to start waffling and, you know, and then he does go for it. He wasn't trusted, unfairly. He's quite a trustworthy person, very loyal to John Major. And he did good work as well in, 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 in government, if, from their point from of view. The, and and uh, from the Thatcher era, he was... A great reforming minister. Hmm. I mean, he was he was the only one who dared to ask Thatcher for public money. You know, the others were too scared to ask. He did and got it for Liverpool and East London and so on. Um, but I, I, I actually do. The only one I speculate about what if is him. I think if he had got it in 1990 when he stood against Thatcher, when John Major won, um, I think Brit would still be in the European Union because he would have got it at a point where the Tory party was still not fully decided as to where it was going on Europe. There was not a single Tory MP saying we should be out of Europe then. And he was so passionately pro, I think he would have taken his party on. Major was a bit more equivocal. Um, so that's the only what if I explore. I mean, there are some really interesting what ifs, to be honest. Like, what if Kinnock had won in 92? Oh, let's go um, to Kinnock. Because um, I, I wanted to touch on just a couple more of, the, of your Kinnock. Yeah, and I was going to say, Kinnock is, for my generation, is the lost, the lost prime minister. Uh, what happened to him? Why did we not It's have a very him? sad story. And of, of the people in the book, um, he is the only one I think I've talked about. He's read it. He's read the chapter on him. And I've discussed it. Um, I think it's 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 one of the sadder chapters. It, my theory is he was doomed from the beginning. He became leader in 1983 when Labour was slaughtered um, at the 83 election. He was never going to turn that round in one election. He but did it, get, he did fight two elections. Yeah, he, he fought two, but. It's too long. So he was leader of the opposition for nine years. And you it was know, a slog, wasn't it? Because he had a lot of work to do. A lot of battles to do. The the papers turned on him. He was he became unsure of who he was. Um, and it was nine years just talking on a stage, uh, doing no power, no power to change things. And people just got fed up with him. And what is really sad is that by 92... The poor sod had been working nine years around the clock. And on the day of the election, the BBC exit poll was wrong and predicted a hung parliament where Labour would be the biggest party. And so he began that evening thinking he'd be prime minister. And by one in the morning, he knew it was all over. And uh, they never get over it. Uh, he's, he hasn't to this uh, very day. Um, but nine years is too long. What, uh, you know, if Keir Starmer loses the next election, 
he needs to go the next day. But he will, yeah. won't he? Because that's what I, happens I think these days. nowadays it's over for them. Yeah, I think he'll be challenged if he doesn't. So they, they have one election now. And after that, you can't be leader of the opposition. And yeah, but that's a kind of sad. The, the leaders of the opposition are the sad stories in this. Because apart from Jeremy Corbyn, who I think was quite relieved to <laughs> yeah. lose, yeah. Um, the others were desperate. So Ed Miliband has never recovered losing. The reason there are 11 is because there's a chapter on David and Ed, and that's a sad story as well. What did Kinnick think of the uh, chapter? Did he, did he tell oh, yeah, you? He thought it was very uh, fair, and he agrees with it, that he never could win. And he tells me, I don't think this, I think this is a bit of sort of retrospective stuff, um, that after the election in 83, he knew he was going to get it, that Michael Foote wanted him to do it. And he never wanted it because he knew the hell involved. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I, he was very ambitious as this very charismatic, he, he really exuberant wanted to be prime minister. And 40, I think he would have been a good prime minister. Well, it's very interesting. His his shadow cabinet in 1992 uh, was really strong. You know, yeah, mm. John Smith, Blair and Brown were in there. Robin Cook, Harriet Harman. I mean, there were uh, Mo Molum. You know, she became famous as Blair's Northern Ireland secretary. She was in Kinnock's team. Um, and it would have been quite a good cabinet. Um, but there's no point. We'll never know. We'll never know what it was like, which is why it's not. It's more the mystery. Why didn't these people get it? You know? Well, only one woman met your criteria to make it onto And only list. just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about Barbara Castle. Yeah, well, just to explain uh, why there aren't uh, more women. In the Conservative Party, the two women who might have made this list became prime minister, yeah. um, which is a more honourable list to be on. Uh, you know, so Thatcher and May became prime minister. Uh, on the Labour side, you know, the truth is that some people would say to me to this very day, Shirley Williams would have been a great prime minister. She never stood for a leadership contest. And there's an irony about Shirley Williams. She was incredibly popular, but kept on losing her seat. <laughs> so she was always out of the House of Commons at key moments. And Harriet Harman never stood in a leadership contest. I think she regrets it now. Margaret so Beckett did. She did, but it was in 1994 when there was only one question in the whole of British politics, which was whether it was going to be Blair or Brown. Yes. And Blair slaughtered her, I'm afraid. So she doesn't make it, although I think she would have been quite good, actually. Margaret Beckett. Yeah, she was a uh, foreign secretary quite effectively. Yeah, and she she stood in and was uh, was an acting leader. She had a past as well. You know, New Labour um, didn't. Well, Gordon Brown had a sense of the past. He was a historian, but a lot of them didn't. She did. She was a minister in the seventies. So the tragedy about John Smith. He was a cabinet minister in the seventies. That he had a sense of power and what it meant. The others were kind of in awe of it. Because they've been out of power for 18, so long. 18 yeah. years. Yeah. 18 years. So I think she'd be quite good. But Barbara Castle makes it, even though she never stood for a leadership contest, every, uh, well, a lot of the women candidates in leadership contests since, like Lisa Nandy and others, all say she is the best that we never had. So I've kind of put her in on that basis. And she is fascinating. I mean, she was ahead of her time she was a great planner and believed in the responsibility of government to plan but that brought with it obligations for others to be part of the plan 
And she came at a cropper with that with the trade unions. She famously well, introduced in place of strike. In 1969, yeah. it, which was going to be this, this new deal on, on, on industrial relations. Regulating the unions, but giving them huge uh, benefits with the responsibilities. Uh, but it got nowhere. Uh, Wilson supported her, but the entire cabinet wouldn't back her. So her, her party wouldn't back her, and it destroyed her. In place of strike, yeah. destroyed her. Now, what's interesting is that um, Jim Callaghan, who did become prime minister, yeah. had an equivalently cataclysmic experience in, in being chancellor during the 1967 devaluation. And yet he found, one of the great quotes is that most routes to number 10 are blocked. Jim found a, a, a route and, and Barbara Castle didn't after yeah. her disaster. Yeah, because, um, I mean, most people don't recover from the trauma of devaluation. But he he kept at it, and of course, in a way, his rehabilitation was his opposition to Barbara Castle, because then to be to have a chance to lead the Labour Party, you had to have the trade unions on your side, and he was of the trade unions and represented them in that battle with Barbara Castle, and then of course, with that great Shakespearean irony, was destroyed by them when he became Prime Minister. And if the castle plan had been implemented, uh, it's so interesting what might have happened then because I think Britain would have been a fairer place in the 70s, um, but there wouldn't have been the scale of disruption. Um, it wasn't a reactionary plan at all. It was, it, it was in a way in the spirit of the 45 government. It was celebrating, uh, regulating and planning as good things, not sinister things. That's why I think she was ahead of her time. She did it with transport as well. She said that transport was her favourite uh, her favorite uh, brief, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. And she was very interesting. She was pursuing the idea of something close to a congestion charge that Ken Livingston brought in in London. Um, this was the late 60s. But she, she alienated a lot of people then, you know, putting compulsory driving belts and this kind mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, because did she, did she do the breathalyzer as well? She did the breathalyzer, yeah. which obviously is this word freedom. You know, people felt their freedom was being impinged, but actually gave people the freedom to live. <laughs> though they weren't not not as many were being killed. Um, so she was a very interesting figure, but she wasn't strategic and she was impatient and she alienated people. Um, and she never stood for the leadership, but she's in there. Finally, I, I sort of nailed my colours to the mast there with Neil Kinnock. Is is there one of these um, of these figures that you think should have made it to number ten? Well, who, who would you pull well, out I, and say that? I, I sometimes avoid this answer because I can never know the political makeup of the audience and things. But I will say <laughs> now, I think it is uh, desperately sad that uh, Kinnock lost in '92. I think it, if you look at the chaos that erupted from '92 to '97 with Maastricht and the Tory rebel revolts. And I think that cabinet would have been good, although they would have suffered that currency crisis, which brought Major to a terminal low just a few months after the 92 election. I don't know what... And then the happen. Tories would have spent the next 30 years saying, you know, yeah. Labour it, will give you well, a currency it's crisis. It's very hard to imagine quite what would have happened. I also think, uh, unfashionably, I mean... Imagine if Ed Miliband had won in 2015. Would have still been in Europe, which mm. I think is a good thing. Mm. This is why it's subjective, this game. Mm. Of who, you know, 
But I think, you know, it would have been a good thing. The austerity that was renewed in 2015 uh, would have been uh, far more measured with uh, Miliband. I think he would have explored interesting questions about ownership and markets, which actually, funnily enough, Theresa May began to raise when she was prime minister. But it, uh, so, but it's very subjective. The one, as I say, the, the only thing I'm kind of confident about in being predicting what might have happened is that we'd still be in Europe if Heseltine had won in 1990. I cannot see how he could have led that party towards the, the route they then took. But some people listening might be great Brexit fans, so they'll think the opposite to what I've just said. But So, so that's why all of that's subjective. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you about Kinnock. I, it's a very sad story, that one. And um, on one level, he's recovered his old ebullience but you can see that these figures are still haunted by this terrible sense of deep, deep rejection. Well, we can finish by being on the same page. So, Steve, thank you very much. The book is uh, The Prime Ministers We Never Had by Steve Richards. It's published by Atlantic, and it's now out in paperback at 10.99. I loved it. Absolutely. Every page. Was oh, well, thank you. It's, it's, you're brilliant. a great interview. You, you, you get to the key themes in a way many others don't. So thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. It's been brilliant. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.